0: Amen. Thanks, Austin. Uh, so, introduce <clears throat> introduced myself a few minutes ago. My name is Jonathan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have I had the opportunity to uh, be on sabbatical uh, the last few months, and so I just wanted to take uh, in Robert's rules of order. They have points of personal privilege. If you have no idea what that is, please do not look it up, because um, it will make you think less of me for even knowing about it. But secondly, we don't have Wi-Fi in here today, so you'd have to use your cell coverage. Maybe don't do that either. But anyway, what a point of personal privilege is, is just an opportunity to say something uh, from a personal perspective, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity that you, as the church, gave, especially to our elders uh, who really pushed <laughs> pushed me to, to do it. Um but for you as a church, for the ability to do it, and I'll take that lightly. Uh, and so, on behalf of Jamie and I, um, thank you. Uh, it's meant, meant, meant a great, great deal. Uh, if you are a, a new person to Redeemer, uh, and you're trying to figure out, is this is this going to be my church home? I'm I'm still trying to learn this place. What kind of people are they? Uh, let me tell you what kind of people uh, this church is. Uh, it is a, a group of people who are extraordinarily generous. Uh, it is a group of people who are extraordinarily gracious uh, because they made it possible for us to do something like we got to do. Uh, and so it, it's worth your serious consideration to jump in with this group of people uh, because there's no other group of people like it. Um, and I, I can say that having been around for um, a while uh, in this place. So thank you, uh, church, for that opportunity. And there's nothing quite like coming back and uh, Drew saying, uh, you're preaching Sunday. So uh, thank you to him. Uh, He's not here, uh, but uh, maybe he'll listen later and can hear me say thank you for this opportunity, Uh, which is uh, the second in a series uh, that we're in. It's been seven years uh, since we have done a sermon series on our mission, our vision, and our values as a church, and many of you were not here the last time we did that. Um, many of you weren't here <laughs> when I left for sabbatical. <laughs> so uh, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope I get to meet you at some point and, uh, and, and you can get to know me as well. But here at the beginning of the school year, when we naturally reset, we felt like it was a great time to revisit some of these ministry priorities By preaching through the scriptures that have shaped and continue to shape us as a church. So these are scriptures that have been core, key, critical, mission critical to Redeemer over the last, coming up on 15 years. There's three core principles. We want to be, first, a people who are fluent in the gospel. And we went through that series back in May. We want to, second, be a people who are for the city. And that's the series we're in now. And then thirdly, igniting and cultivating a movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven and Polk County. Uh, renewal is so important, okay? Speaking, uh, having come off a time of uh, renewal, it's, it's vital. And so we want to see renewal in our city and in our county. And so this morning we're in week two of this uh, second principle for the city And uh, the scripture you can find in your worship folder, it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, the page numbers are here in the worship folder or in the Bible that you brought from home. Uh, As uh, Drew likes to say, we we do not want to give you an excuse to not have your eyes on the text, okay? Uh, And so uh, put your eyes on the text as I read. First from Luke uh, chapter 4 and then just one verse. From uh, the book of James. Okay? So, first, from Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, this is God's word. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, "Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb Physician, heal yourself.' What you have heard, what we have heard, you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well." And he said, "Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months." And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And then uh, one verse from uh, the book of James, if I can get to it. James chapter 1, verse 27, the last verse of the first chapter. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, can you say with me? Is it up there? Yeah, okay. Let's say this together. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So you have the outline printed for you in the worship folder, and we're going to take a look at three things from uh, this passage because really what you have here is uh, Jesus describing his work or his personal mission statement. So what is that? Defining that? Learning that there's some tension in that, and then lastly, uh, the power behind it. Okay, so defining, the a, a definition, a tension, and a power. Okay, those three things. This is Jesus's mission statement, so it stands to reason it should be ours as well, right? Uh, but not only that, Jesus is saying this is how you know I'm among you in the power of the Spirit. You, we didn't read it, but. If you go to the beginning of Luke chapter 4, Luke says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, okay, returned from the Jordan after being baptized and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And then he recounts Jesus' temptation. In verse 14, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He's saying, the reason or how you know I'm among you If the Spirit is among you, is that you are doing these things, this is your mission statement too. If the church is not doing these things, then there's a good chance Jesus isn't among them, or at least not among them in the fullness of the power of the Spirit. A group of people who are doing some of these things, but not others, they're showing themselves to not have really, truly had an encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. See, we'll get into it. Uh, drill down into this passage, but he's quoting from Isaiah 61. And he says, there's a proclamation of the gospel, to be sure, but there's also a demonstration of the gospel. The two go hand in hand. The king has words and the king has ways that are carried out in his kingdom. There's a king and he has good news as well as the reality that his kingdom looks and feels a certain way. It has a certain nature to it. The church exists both to proclaim that message and live that reality, hence the title this morning, The King and His Kingdom. The way that Redeemer's Mission puts it, and I believe it's on the back of the worship folder every week, is we want to make the invisible kingdom visible, okay? Uh, And so this morning, let's drill down into this passage uh, beginning in verse sixteen, Jesus goes to a synagogue service on the Sabbath, as was his custom. So he went to church every week. so should you. Don't worry, I'm not going to come back and be all mean and angry and you know yell at you for thirty minutes or something. But you see a pattern here, right? Luke says, as was his custom. He goes to the synagogue. And the way that it, the way the synagogue service worked is someone would read a portion of the Bible, which, of course, in Jesus' day is simply the Old Testament, and then they would expound it, okay? In Jesus' day, uh, the person expounding the Bible passage would sit down while they expounded it, and the congregation would stand. So, I think, if we're going to be biblical, I'm going to sit down. No, uh, that's, how, that's how it works. So he, he unrolls the scroll. He finds Isaiah 61. He reads these verses, and then the person would expound it. And in this case, his explanation is one sentence, and it's astounding. What does he say? Look there in verse 21. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? I mean, it's very hard for us to fully grasp how much of a mic drop moment this was, because that's what it was. He comes on the scene and he says that the only way to understand things like freedom and kindness and compassion and justice is to know their source. They're not going to make sense apart from the good news of the gospel. He says, I'm the servant of the Lord. I'm the servant that Isaiah talked about. The one who's been sent to carry out a mission. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do these things. I've been sent on a mission. Now, what kinds of things has the Spirit anointed the Messiah to do? As I said, and you'll hear me say this several different times because I just want to emphasize it, his statement includes proclamation and demonstration. It's not enough to just proclaim. It's not enough to only demonstrate. You have to do both, right? Frank Sinatra, love and marriage. Remember the old song, you can't have one without the other. You got to have both. And what Jesus was sent to do, he did. He began the work of ridding the world of the guilt of sin and the ruin of misery through his life, death, and resurrection. He continues to do that to this day. And one day, we believe, he will wipe it away forever. Now, if you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, maybe unsure of what you believe, I hope that unpacking this mission statement a little bit, will give you a taste both of the character of our king, but also the nature of his kingdom. I hope it will give you some insight into what makes Redeemer tick as well, and I hope you'll give serious consideration to Christianity. Now, I'm just going to bullet point through these uh, for a moment and then come back to one, but just go through them uh, with me. If you look at verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. The word is gospel. To the poor. So my question to you this morning, and I just have questions for all of these, can you feel where you are poor? He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Where are you coming brokenhearted this morning? Because remember what I said, he's still doing this work. It's not like he stopped and we're trying to figure out how to do it now in his place. He says he's doing it through us in the power of the Spirit. So where are you coming brokenhearted this morning? He intends to bind you up. Proclaim freedom or liberty to the captives. Where do you feel locked down, enslaved? Recovery of sight to the blind. Is there something in your life you can't see? Something that's continuing to confuse you? Some darkness that's pervading some aspect of your life? a a real sense of feeling blind. And then he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the year of jubilee. Only if you go back to Isaiah 61, you'll notice Jesus only reads half the verse. I mean, he's Jesus, he can do that, right? But he stops mid-sentence in his quotation. Because the rest of Isaiah 61, the the, the tail end of that little passage there, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. Why do you think he stops there? He cuts off half the verse. Because Jesus Christ didn't come to bring vengeance. He came to take vengeance upon himself. We believe that's what happened on the cross. Now, this coming, he didn't come to bring vengeance. But he says he's coming again. And that time, it's not going to be as, well, peaceful as the first go around. Now we've got to back up to the the first thing that he says, because in many ways it's most crucial and everything else kind of flows from it. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Do you know your poverty? You may not be materially poor. In fact, most of us in this room are far from that, right? No, the question is what in your life are you banking on? What gives you a sense that you're accepted, or okay, or included. Unless you know yourself to be spiritually and morally impoverished, spiritually and morally naked, emaciated, malnourished, you'll not get the gospel. Because right off the bat, you have to understand who Jesus says the good news is for. The, the good news is only for those who see themselves as impoverished, captive, blind, oppressed, by sin. Whether any of these things apply physically or materially to you, the key to understanding Jesus's mission statement is to know each of these things to be true of you, spiritually speaking, or else you won't really think the good news is for you. The gospel you might view as good advice, maybe a nice story, but it's not news. Certainly not good news. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels to the Pharisees, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And their problem, of course, was that they thought themselves to be very healthy when in fact they were very, very sick. See, Jesus came for the sin sick, the sin broken, the sin impoverished, the sin enslaved, the blind, those blinded by sin, those crumbling under the weight and the depth or excuse me, the debt of their sin. That's who he came for. That's who the good news is for. He says, I came for the spiritually poor, those who know they have nothing to offer me. That's who I've been sent to. He's not saying he came only for the materially poor. After all, he uses two examples. One is a poor widow, and the other is a very wealthy military officer. That is this widow in Zarephath, and then uh, Naaman the Syrian. But the point is, he didn't come for religious widows or religious lepers. He came for idol-worshipping outcasts, those with no religious pedigree, those with no, no moral props to lean on. See, neither the widow from Zarephath nor Naaman the Syrian had the right ethnic heritage. Neither of them were from the 12 tribes of Israel. They had nothing. They were nothing. In fact, in the story of Naaman the Syrian, you can read it later on. It's a great story I'd encourage you to. He, he tries to offer Elisha something in exchange for the miracle. But the God of Israel isn't like your gods, Elisha says to Naaman. All you need is nothing. And that's the one thing Naaman doesn't have. The, the Christian gospel is Very well summarized by this, uh, or in this verse, from a hymn written by Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages. Uh, Some of you, or most of you, many of you are familiar with it, but the, the verse that always comes to mind to me is this. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Here's the thing, though. In both of these stories from the Old Testament, the the prophet Elijah and Elisha, they're they're actually addressing physical or material needs. One provides food and provision for the widow. The other provides healing from leprosy for Naaman. So is Jesus saying it's enough for his kingdom to have well-fed widows and no lepers? No, of course not, right? In both cases, as well as examples from Jesus' own ministry, the miracle, the healing, the need is always linked with the healer the provider, the Lord. Elijah and Elisha came to these Gentiles representing the one true God of Israel. They were sent to proclaim good news to each of these people. Idols are empty, the Lord is real. Bow to him and meet a need. That is, the Lord sees you. The Lord sees your poverty, your hunger, uh, widow, The Lord sees your desire to be healed and whole, Naaman, and Jesus did both as well. Because, you see, the realities of the gospel lead to results of the gospel. The vertical truths that we proclaim, they have horizontal impacts that we execute, and we have to be doing both. Our belief in the gospel leads to a becoming or behaving in a gospel way. Now, how do I know this? Well, at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is described on the road to Emmaus uh, as he's walking with these disciples as a man mighty in word and deed. Word and deed integrated. Word and deed. That's why we planted a church and helped to start Heart for It's why the church has Bible studies and soup kitchens. It's why the church has a leadership structure that is elders who are responsible for overseeing the ministry of the word and deacons who are responsible for overseeing the ministry of deed. Word and deed. You see both of these dynamics in that one verse from James. Uh, If you look back at it there, James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Christianity is headed by a king. And when we talk about a king, King Jesus and his expectations, there are certain priorities and realities, many things that in fact have much in common with certain cultural perspectives In our day, the king speaks into how you behave in marriage, in finances, in private. He says, be holy. If you go back to the uh, reading of the law passage from uh, Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. The church is in the world, but not of the world. James says, keep yourself unstained because you're different. But Christianity is also a kingdom, right? Where certain priorities and certain actions are carried out. Many things that in fact have much in common with another cultural perspective. Things like everyone is welcome. Equality and diversity are valued because Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 is true. Human beings are made in God's image, male and female, he created them. That is a foundational statement to all of reality. Not only that, the material poor have value and should be cared for, justice like racial, economic, and social justice, is a priority. Widows and orphans. Widows and orphans are two of the most vulnerable segments of the population. Their lives are characterized by affliction, according to James. And we visit them in the same way we have been visited by God in the Lord Jesus. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, says the message, John chapter 1. So there are kingdom realities and there are kingdom results. Now, we got to go to the tension, right? The children's catechism, question number 35, says, as a result of the fall, Adam and Eve went from being in a state of, are there there any kids left in here? Okay, well, adults, you should know this too. Okay, as a result of the fall, Adam and Eve went from being in a state of happy and holy to sinful and miserable. But what happens if you only seek to focus on one? What happens if you solve one problem, but not the other? You focus on the holy part or the happy part. You focus on the sinful issue, but not the misery. And that leads to the tension, okay? There's a tension that naturally arises. We can overemphasize certain aspects of our work against others. Now, what is that tension? What happens when we fall off on either side, so to speak? And you see this in the reactions that Jesus receives throughout his ministry at times it lets you know the people of his day were leaning or had a tendency to lean one direction or another and if it can happen to them it can happen to us too so back to the passage luke chapter 4 in the passage the jews in the synagogue respond in a way that shows you that they want the king but not his kingdom but they only want the king because they believe they can control him. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that if I do what the king tells me to do, and if I live the way he wants me to live, then my life should go according to plan. He owes me. I've done my part. He does his part. See, the Jews heard Jesus quote Isaiah 61, and they thought, yes! Messiah has come to rid us of the Roman scourge to release us from captivity, to usher in the permanent year of jubilee. No more taxes. I would have thought that would have gotten an amen from uh, us, but no more taxes. We've been his special people since Abraham, so he's finally making good on his promise to deliver us once and for all. Now, how do we know that the people in this congregation in Nazareth did not see themselves as spiritually poor and morally bankrupt? Well you may have noticed there's a pretty large difference pretty pretty a stark contrast between verse 22 and 28. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 22. He reads the passage, he sits down, he says, "This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming out of his mouth." All of this is all of you the all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's very much like what's happening right now. Your eyes are fixed on me. You're wondering and marveling at the gracious words coming out of my mouth. And then there's verse 28. What does verse 28 say after he uh, does some more expounding? When they heard these things, all, the all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, here's hoping that doesn't happen today. That by the end, uh, you're driving me out, throwing me in the lake, you know, hoping to drown me out there or something, right? There's a huge difference. What's going on? Well, <clears throat> the problem was this congregation did not see themselves as in need of good news. They wanted the king, they didn't necessarily care about the realities of his kingdom. They didn't feel like they fit into any of those. Or at least they didn't want to hear that anyone else might fit into those. Because Jesus goes on to say, no, my kingdom is for the widows of Zarephath, the Gentile widows, the idol-worshipping widows. And for lepers, not just lepers in Israel, in fact, not lepers in Israel as long as they don't believe. But the lepers in places like Syria... Remember the centurion and Jesus' response to the centurion. Do you remember? One of the only places in all the Gospels where the Son of God marvels. Do you know what makes God the Son marvel, wonder? Wow! What makes him say that? The faith of the centurion. The faith of a Gentile. So they wanted the king but no kingdom. And at other times Jesus seemed to have the opposite effect, right? If you go to John chapter uh, 6... There's a famous story where Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and it's a long chapter, but as the chapter uh, progresses, he and his disciples are trying to get away from the people to get a break, right? Do you think it's exhausting to feed 5,000 people? Have you ever fed 5,000 people? It's probably pretty exhausting, especially if you made food for 5,000 out of two fish and a couple of loaves of bread. They're trying to get away. The people keep following him. They go to one side of the uh, lake, the people are there. They get into the other side of the lake, the people are there. They can't get away from the people. People, 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 everywhere. And he finally looks at them and he says, Hey, you guys aren't following me because you want to hear what I have to say. You want a bread factory. You want walking free food for life. And he begins to challenge them. And by the end of John chapter 6, Jesus is looking around and the only people in front of him are his guys and he says, hey, do you guys want to leave too? So he started out with 5,000 and he whittled it down to 12 by the end of the chapter. See, these people wanted a kingdom, a place where no one is hungry, but they didn't want the king who said things like, unless you submit yourself to me, you have no part in me. Now, how do we tend to experience the, the tension today? A pastor in our denomination uh, summarized it this way he said the culture wars are not between the secular and the religious or even the left and the right but really between two sides of the coin the pursuit of the kingdom without a king versus the caricature of the king without his kingdom see the struggle for the church in our current cultural moment is how do you engage with people who find themselves being discipled by Jesus and Nietzsche I mean, kids grow up hearing, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. that That's a Jesus idea, right? That's Christian-ish. And then they hear things like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So which is it, right? Many of the values of our, of the kingdom of God are mixed into culture in profound ways, but there's not much mention of the king because... Well, as Westerners, we don't like the idea of monarchy. We like democracy. Amen? Well, I thought I was actually you probably shouldn't say amen, because you know, I'm 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 getting at a point of something that isn't good. <laughs> right? Yet the church, though, and many of you have probably experienced this, is often more concerned with solving the sin problem than the misery problem, or at least it rarely mentions the misery problem. But listen, if Jesus came to make us holy and happy again. When the king gets separated from the kingdom, it can begin to feel like all we care about is the holy part. And listen, Charles Spurgeon, pastor in London in the 19th century, said, Be half a Christian and you shall have enough religion to make you miserable. His concern was church going people who loved the good advice and rules of the king, who knew his laws, but weren't as excited about the story, his grace to the undeserving, his pursuit of the outsider. That's the reason he gets the response he gets in Nazareth. But rather than making them half happy, it makes them miserable, grumpy, touchy, guarded, judgmental, legalistic. That sounds kind of like the Pharisees. At the same time, our broader culture is wanting the kingdom desperately, right? If I say words like equality, social justice, diversity, inclusion, What kind of person or institution or ideology comes to mind? Usually not Christian ones. Our culture passionately values equality, compassion, consent, freedom, progress, and the like. And yet even though the culture has jettisoned institutional Christianity, it carries on with a moral crusading. The very morals that are sourced in Christianity. And so it's not so much everything that's permitted, it's everything that everything gets preached. And if you blaspheme the values, you are excommunicated, also known as canceled. Which sounds very religious, does it not? It's very religious behavior. So I want to read you a quote from one of the books that I listed as a resource there, The Air We Breathe. It's a great book. And he says this, the Western experiment has been an attempt to secularize Christianity. Johnny Cash saying, they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. And in order to pursue the kingdom without the king, we've had to devalue the person of Christ and install abstract values instead. But the problem is, values can only judge your keeping or not of them, but only a person can save. Only a person can forgive you. Christian morals have always been the morals to a story, and today we've ditched the story, but we've kept the morals. The kingdom without the king is not so much a place of liberation as a place of judgment, and we are all the judges, and we are all the judged. We desperately need a person above and beyond the values, a person who does not simply expect our best, but who forgives our worst. And you will not find that on "X," formerly known as Twitter. That's, what's, that's, what, that's what they call it. I don't. I'm just repeating what I've read or seen. It's ironic though, because Spurgeon's insight, it proves true on this side too. Many of those on a crusade to rid the world of misery are miserable themselves. Be half a Christian, take the king or the kingdom, half of uh, the one or the other, and you will have enough religion to make you miserable. In the first century, there were a lot of things that distinguished Christians from the culture. The church had a value system that puzzled the Romans because it was so unique. And I'm just going to list off uh, four of these uh, real quick. Christians valued all of life from the cradle to the grave. And in a culture where babies were aborted for all sorts of reasons and the old were tossed away, euthanasia was practiced in Rome, Christians were known to raise orphan children and care for the elderly. Christians believed, number two, that marriage was between a man and a woman in a covenantal union that was binding and exclusive for life and so in a culture where sex was transactional and coerced Christians valued and promoted sexual fidelity among spouses where sex was covenantal and consensual these are these are mind-blowing things to the romans and yet the church was able to hold them in Christians were from all sorts of backgrounds, socioeconomic, slaves, masters, converts from Africa, Ephesus, Rome, Jews, non-Jews, all worshiping together. It was the most diverse group of people in the ancient world. In a culture where everyone was segmented or classified or labeled, Christians were formed by a new identity in Jesus. And unlike gladiators, they didn't have to perform to keep their status. Their status was secure in Jesus. It was bought with the blood of Christ. And finally, Christians carried out justice. They looked for the poor and the marginalized of society. A Roman leader famously wrote a letter to one of his underlings that the Christians in his town took better care of the poor than the government did. Widows, orphans, immigrants, everyone was offered care and comfort. See, in a culture that only valued the valuable, the elite aristocrats the landowners, the senators, Roman citizens. Christians sought out the most vulnerable and the weakest. Now, uh, I've got just a minute to be done and give you the power. Uh, I would highly recommend you read uh, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. His basic argument is this, and this is where the power comes in. Only a person who has known the justifying grace of God in Jesus can become a person who does and loves justice. That is, a person who has submitted to the king becomes a person who lives out and loves the realities of the kingdom. Grace makes you just. The power behind that motivation to serve, whether it is the, uh, the whole city, whoever, the poor, the outcast, the lonely, the widow, the orphan, the prostitutes, the pimps, just to name a few, is justification by grace. We read it earlier. Jesus came for sinners, and I'm the chief That's the attitude that takes you to a place where you begin to look at everyone as as spiritually bankrupt as you, and so you long for them to hear the good news. The gospel says you are all of those things, and yet Jesus came for you, and that will drain the superiority or the indifference right out of your heart. Now, if you're here again, not a Christian, I hope this story... Of God's grace in Jesus is compelling you that it'll be compelling enough to join us because knowing the grace of Jesus who became poor so that you could become rich rich in God rich in the spirit that will turn you into a person who loves justice and mercy a person who loves seeing Isaiah 61 come to fruition in their neighborhood wherever it is and their city we attack the sin and misery in the world both because Jesus died for sins And rose again to defeat death and push misery out for good. He's on a mission to rid the world of sin and misery. And he says, join me. Psalm 37, uh, we read it earlier in the summer. It says, befriend faithfulness. And so can we pray and ask that God would make us faithful for the city that's going to require a long obedience in the same direction over a lifetime. So this church exists and will exist well beyond uh, Drew and I and our current elders' lives. Hartford Winter Haven will exist long after its current leadership. We want to see things for the city multiplied a long obedience over us, over a, a lifetime for the good of others so that our fruit the fruit of the king and his kingdom will be seen uh, in our city and in our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the opportunity to meditate uh, on what you were sent to do and what you did. Uh, The proclamation of the good news uh, to the poor, the recovery of sight to the blind, the proclaiming of the year of the Lord's favor. And we pray that you would Go with us, Holy Spirit, in your power to bear witness to the reality that our king has come and his kingdom is here. And all that we do is we continue to seek to make that invisible kingdom, the realities of it, more and more visible to our city and our county and our world. As we do that, that you would find us faithful. Uh, and uh, continually marveling at what you do through us in the Spirit. Uh, And so, help us to hold that tension, uh, and help us to lean in to know that grace and grace alone makes us just. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Amen. The line from that song that uh, gets me is that he welcomes the weakest, uh, the vilest, the poor, and... If you see yourself or until you see yourself as having been welcomed in his mercy as the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. That's me. That Seeing yourself as that will give you the ability to go and welcome all of those people and anyone else into the kingdom uh, that's underneath our gracious king. Our good and gracious king as we sang about earlier. So receive this benediction. Take it. Uh, and may it cement its way down into the depths of your soul and be the power that you need to go this week. As you go, he goes with you, anointed by the Spirit, to carry out that same work, that same mission. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.